In Psalm 137, the psalmist, speaking of the Babylonian captivity, said, By the rivers of Babylon we sat down and we wept. Tonight we see Ezekiel, who was stationed at the rivers of Babylon, the Kibar River, where with his fellow exiles he was mourning the loss of the independence that they once had and predicting the future that Jerusalem would fall to the Babylonians. Ezekiel had an interesting ministry. On one hand, what he was doing is informing the people who were already in exile that the preacher they already heard while they were in Judah, who was Jeremiah, was right when he predicted that Judah and Jerusalem would fall to the Babylonians and that the false prophets that they were listening to because their message was, oh, you'll be all right, we'll return, and Jerusalem won't fall, Ezekiel was informing the people that these false prophets were wrong and Jeremiah was right. Back in the year 1870, there was a preacher, a clergyman, who was visiting his friend at a small Christian university on the East Coast. This clergyman made a bold and odd prediction. He said he believed that nothing new could be invented. Imagine saying that in 1870. Nothing new can be invented from now on. And the college president at whose house this clergyman was staying looked at him in astonishment and he said, I disagree. And then he made a prediction. I believe within 50 years men will soar through the air like birds. The clergyman looked at him aghast and he said, No, flight is reserved for the angels alone, and I beg you not to repeat that, lest you be guilty of blasphemy. What is interesting is the clergyman's name. His name was Reverend Milton Wright, W-R-I-G-H-T. He had two boys, Wilbur and Orville Wright. Within 30 years, those boys would have the first flight at Kitty Hawk, North Carolina. Reverend Wright was wrong. (laughs) And the false prophets who were trying to ease the people's minds by saying, you'll be back, you'll return, Jerusalem shall not fall, they were not right, they were wrong. Ezekiel was there to say, Jeremiah was right all along, and he will reinforce from chapter 4 to chapter 24 the fall of Jerusalem. Remember that Ezekiel was part of the second group that was taken captive from Jerusalem. We have made mention now for a long time in these studies of Jeremiah and Lamentations and Ezekiel that there were three sieges, three deportations, main groups that left Jerusalem and were taken to Babylon. Ezekiel was among the second. 
By the time he got to the Kibar River, this refugee camp in Babylon, he was about 25 years of age. He stays in Babylon. He's in his own house. He's with his wife. Five years after coming to Babylon, he begins his ministry at age 30, which was the time that priests began their ministry in the temple. It's interesting that he was a priest. He was from the priestly family. But because he was taken captive, he was never able to enter into his ministry as a priest, but God called him from the priesthood to be a prophet. And so he begins a series of messages that are more like action sermons. He acts out a lifestyle, and then he'll explain what it means to the people so that there can be no misunderstanding. Somebody once said, we would rather see a sermon than hear one any day. They had already heard sermon after sermon by Jeremiah. They didn't want to listen to him. So now they're going to watch, see a sermon, several of them preached by Ezekiel, And then it will be fortified by the message that Ezekiel gives. You also, son of man, take a clay tablet and lay it before you and portray on it a city, Jerusalem. Lay siege against it, build a siege wall against it, and heap up a mound against it. Set up camps against it also and place battering rams against it all around. Men, do you remember when you were kids and you played war with toy soldiers? God is telling him to play war. Interesting instructions. Go out there and get a clay tablet. And several clay tablets have been found by the archaeologists that are about two feet by one foot. They were used as Babylonian writing tablets. Several have been found in the archaeology of that area filled with cuneiform writing of the era. He was to take this clay tablet and and probably draw a diagram of Jerusalem, then perhaps using little wooden blocks or dirt clods to portray the army men, the soldiers, the siege ramps, the battering rams, etc. He placed them all around that portrait of Jerusalem. He's going to show them how that Jerusalem is going to fall. It'll be a long siege. In fact, it was a long siege. It lasted 30 months because Jerusalem was a well-fortified city and it had steep and difficult topography. So it was difficult to just take that city quickly. It took 30 months of building mounds, ramps, Uh, armaments to break through the walls of Jerusalem before it eventually fell and was burned with fire in 586. But again, the people had already rejected that. And now there's a prophet among them who, while they're in Babylon, six years, by the way, before Jerusalem actually fell, is going to reinforce the message they've already heard. Pastors know what it's like when somebody comes in for counseling and they really don't want to hear the counsel that the pastor or the counselor gives. And so you see it in their body language and their response. It's like, I want a second opinion. I don't know if I want to do what the Bible says. I'm going to get somebody else's interpretation, hoping if they go to another counselor, another pastor, that they'll tell them exactly what they want to hear. But if you go to two and they tell you exactly the same thing, it's time to listen. 
So if you reject one prophet named Jeremiah in Judah and you hear another one who's where you're at saying the same thing, it's time to listen. And we'll see if they do as we go through the book. Moreover, take for yourself an iron plate. could be translated a griddle or an iron pan. And set it as an iron wall between you and the city. That little replica he had made. Set your face against it, and it shall be besieged. And you shall lay siege against it. This will be a sign to the house of Israel. Now, as Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, tightened his grip on the city of Jerusalem, as that siege wall that surrounded the entire city was built and camps were set up and famine began to set in and hardship after hardship befell the inhabitants of Jerusalem, there came a point where they started crying out to God begging God for mercy. But at that point, it was too late. And this iron pan, this plate that Jeremiah set between Jerusalem and himself, signified that it was too late, and though they cried out, there was a wall of separation that would divide their prayers and the ears of God. The prophet Isaiah spoke about sort of the same principle. In Isaiah chapter 59, he said, The Lord's hand is not short that it cannot save, nor is his ear heavy that it cannot hear, but your iniquities have separated between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. And that's the tragedy of going against the will of God and rebelling time after time after time, they had reached a point where it was too late. And here was the sign to the house of Israel. I'm not going to hear. And you remember, God told Jeremiah three times, don't pray for this people anymore. You can pray, and I won't even hear you when you pray to me. The Apostle Paul asked, if God be for us, who can be against us? The reverse is also true. If God is against you, it doesn't matter who's for you. You can cry out to the Egyptians or to the people of Tyre or the Moabites, and they tried all of those as allies. And trusting in man, it was too late. God was coming against them. It didn't matter who was for them. Now, the truth is today, God is for you under the new covenant, in a relationship with Christ. He's for you. He's on your side. Actually, you're on his side. So it's wrong for us to rebel against any aspect of the will of God because it's to the detriment of us. It only hurts ourselves. Lie on your left side, verse 4, and lay the iniquity of the house of Israel upon it. According to the number of the days that you lie on it, you shall bear their iniquity. For I have laid on you the years of their iniquity according to the number of the days, 390 days, so you shall bear the iniquity of the house of Israel. And when you have completed them, lie again on your right side. Then you shall bear the iniquity of the house of Israel, or house of Judah, 
for 40 days. I have laid on you a day for each year. So a total of 430 days, that would signify 430 years, adding up the iniquity of the northern kingdom Israel and the southern kingdom Judah. So presumably he would lie on his left side facing north, typifying the judgment that would come upon the northern kingdom of Israel. Then he would lie for 40 days on his right side facing south, uh, typifying the years that God would lay judgment upon the house of Judah. The question comes as we read this, was he lying on his side 24 hours a day for that many days? Certainly possible. We're going to read on as we go that God constrained him and put him there and enabled him to pull that off. But because of the other tasks that God will tell him to do during the day, it's best to see it that there was a period of time during each day as people would see him in public, he would lie down on his side and he did it day after day after day for a total of 430 days. Therefore, you shall set your face toward the siege of Jerusalem. Your arm shall be uncovered and you shall prophesy against it. The arm uncovered was symbolic of a soldier who would not only gird up his robe, but uncover his arm, signifying he was ready for battle at a moment's notice. Surely and surely I will restrain you so that you cannot turn from one side to another until you have ended the days of your siege. The question is, what does it all mean exactly? Where do we find the 430 years where God judges Israel and Judah? That's a tough one because I've looked at a lot of different commentators, and uh, some taters are more common than others. (laughs) Most of them gloss over this altogether. They just say it doesn't really fit anything that we know of and they move on. The Septuagint translation, which is um, the Greek version of the Hebrew Bible, translates it not 390 but 190 days for the judgment upon the northern kingdom, which doesn't fit at all and it doesn't do it justice and it just confuses it and it lacks uh, Hebrew manuscript authority. Another explanation of this uh, timeline is they say 430 years of Gentile domination dating from the captivity of Jehoiachin in Babylon began in 597 B.C. And they take those years all the way out to 167 B.C., which was the Maccabean Revolt, when Judas Maccabeus revolted against the Syrians in order to cleanse the temple. The reason that doesn't fit is because the temple was still not cleansed in that year. It wasn't until a couple of years later when there was uh, the freedom under the revolt. So it really doesn't quite fit. Another explanation is that uh, 390 years from the time that Jeroboam split the kingdom until the return of the Jews from captivity, and then that the 40 days signified 40 years, 40 years being the amount of time that 
the Shekinah glory was taken away and then returned to the temple. The only trouble is we have nothing either in Scripture or secular history that says the Shekinah glory disappeared and came back for 40 years. So we're left again. What does this mean, these 430 years of judgment? We only have 70 years that we know are accounted for. Those were the 70 years of captivity in Babylon. So what do we do with the remaining 360 years of judgment? Perhaps the key is found in Leviticus, where in chapter 26, four times God says, I'm going to take you captive. You'll be in another land. And if for all of this you do not repent and return to me, I will punish you, he said, seven times for your iniquity. If you took 360, the remaining years, after removing the 70 years of captivity, you have 2,520 years. So some have looked at that and said, okay, you got 2,520 years, and that's the approximate time of the Jewish dispersion outside of the land of Israel. The problem I have is the word approximate. Because God and approximate don't really go together, do they? God is very precise. Okay, let's go back in history. Remember I said there are three sieges of Jerusalem. 605 B.C., 597, and uh, uh, 586 B.C. Those three. The first one, 605 B.C., begins the servitude of the nation of Israel to Babylon. The third siege, which began in the summer, July 18th of 586 B.C., begins the destruction, the desolation of Jerusalem. If you were to begin counting from the first date, 605 B.C., when Nebuchadnezzar first came against Jerusalem and it became a vassal state, If you were to begin counting 2,520 years past that to the very day you come to May 14, 1948, when David Ben-Gurion on international radio, using Ezekiel as his text, declared that the new name for the nation under biblical authority will be Israel. If you were to begin counting from the third date, the 586 date, that July 18th of 586, and you count 2,520 years, you get to June of 1967. June 7th of 1967, which when Jerusalem became under Jewish dominion, so that would fit that third siege, the desolations of Jerusalem, and then ended when Jerusalem came under Jewish occupation once again as a result of the Six-Day War. So very interesting how it could all fit together. Also, take for yourself wheat, barley, beans, lentils, millet. God's given them a recipe here. And spelt and put them into one vessel and make bread of them for yourself during the number of the days that you lie on your side, 390 days you shall eat it. And your food which you shall eat by weight, 20 shekels a day from time to time you shall eat it. That's about 10 ounces. You shall also drink water by measure, one-sixth of a hen, two-thirds of a quart. From time to time you shall drink. 
Now, these were common grains back in those days for making bread. Very common in the Middle East, very common in Israel for making bread. However, these things were not combined into the same recipe unless food was scarce. When there was a famine, you would take all of these kinds of things, all of these um, spelt and millet and seeds that would normally be discarded and you'd get together as much as you can and make a hybrid kind of a bread, just throwing anything you can in it because there's nothing left. All of this was to depict the severe famine that would come because of that long siege of the Babylonians against Judah. Food would be scarce, so they would have to pool their resources to provide a meal. You shall eat it as barley cakes and bake it using the fuel of human waste in their sight. Then the Lord said, So shall the children of Israel eat their defiled bread among the Gentiles where I drive them. So I said, Ah, Lord God, indeed I have never defiled myself from my youth till now. I have never eaten what died of itself or was torn by beasts, nor has abominable flesh ever come into my mouth. God is portraying what the life will be like in Jerusalem during the siege six years before it finally fell. Keep that in mind. And he's describing it and asks Ezekiel to portray it. But when he does, because of the stipulation, the prophet becomes unglued. Oh, Lord, no, please, not that. Keep in mind, he was a priest. He was a kosher kid. He wasn't used to uh, doing anything that would defile him. You remember sort of the same thing in the book of Acts when Peter is at the house of Simon the Tanner and he's praying up on the rooftop and it's 12 noon and he sees that vision of that sheet coming down from heaven with all sorts of unkosher beasts. And the Lord says, rise, Peter, kill and eat. And his response, typical Peter, not so, Lord. I have never eaten anything that is common nor unclean. It happened three times. God said, Peter, don't call common what I've cleansed. The message there was that God would open up the door to the Gentiles and what he had called unclean and common, i.e. the Gentiles, God would bring them into the fold. What God is showing the prophet Ezekiel, and it causes this revolt, is that the people in Jerusalem will be defiled and will eat more abominable things than this. They're going to eat their own children, as we saw in the book of Lamentations. But God will give him a concession. Notice in verse 15, he said to me, See, I am giving you cow dung instead of human waste, and you shall prepare your bread over it. So it was um, uh, this fuel that was used, cow chips, that was then the stone was put over it to to provide heat. And by the way, to this day, because of scarcity of uh, wood in certain places, the Bedouin Arabs will use animal waste as uh, their fuel. Moreover, he said, Son of man, surely I will cut off the supply of bread in Jerusalem. They shall eat bread by weight and with anxiety and shall drink water by measure and with dread that they may lack bread and water and be dismayed with one another and waste away because of their iniquity. 
So many times, the judgment of God is greatly misunderstood by people. People so often when they talk about the judgment of God have this predisposed notion that God has a divine temper tantrum of sorts. And he's just peeving and angry at humans and can't wait to just act or react in vengeance against them. Actually, the wrath of God and the judgment of God is part of God's moral integrity. If God didn't judge, he would not be just. If God were not just, he would not be loving. God spells out in advance the consequences, the blessings. And then he says, choose the right one. Choose life. Make the right choice. But because he has created us with the power of volition, we can choose correctly. We can choose wrongly. And he warns us, you make the right choice, you'll be blessed. You make the wrong choice, you'll do it to yourself, but you'll be cursed. And so it is with any judgment, be it the temporary judgment of the Babylonian captivity or, for that matter, the ultimate judgment of hell. How could a God of love create a hell? The answer is, how could a God of love not? It would violate his moral integrity. I love what G.K. Chesterton once wrote years ago. He said, hell is God's great compliment to the reality of human freedom and the dignity of human choice. God allows us to make the choice. But all the while he is saying, make the right choice. If you choose not to go to heaven, if you choose to reject God, there will be consequences. And so now, in an action sermon, several, the attention of these exiles bears that message clearly. And you, son of man, chapter 5 begins, take a sharp sword, take it as a barber's razor, and pass it over your head and your beard, and then take scales to weigh and divide the hair. Speaking now of the precision of God's judgment. It's not haphazard. It's not capricious. It's very precise. The hair was cut. His head was shaved. His beard was shaved. Ezekiel took his hair, and on a scale he would divide it up. And you shall burn with fire one-third in the midst of the city. When the days of the siege are finished, then you will take one-third and strike around it with a sword, and one-third you shall scatter it in the wind. I will draw out a sword after them. Now, this sign has several aspects to it. Number one, it represents defilement. A priest was considered defiled if he were to enter into the ministry of the priest, the officiating of the priest, shaving his head or his beard. In Leviticus 21, they shall not make any bald place on their heads nor shave the edges of their beards. Second, it represents shame. Jewish men grow their beards out and the side curls long because of the scripture that I just read, though it was for the priests. God told the men not to shave the corners of their beards. So you'll see them in Israel today. They love the longer the better. You know, you're a mature Jewish man if you've got that puppy hanging down pretty low. (laughs) 
To shave it off or to have it shaved off, especially by an enemy, was considered a shame. When David sent men over across the Jordan River to make a peace treaty, the ruler of that time in 2 Samuel, Hanun, took David's men and shaved half of their beards. And it was a disgrace. David let them stay in Jericho till their beards had grown out because of the shame. Third, it was a depiction of worldliness. Only the pagan nations shaved their beards and their heads when somebody died. It was a sign of mourning in pagan nations. Israel had died. Jeremiah was overseeing the death of that nation. And yet the children of Israel, the children of Judah, acted in their reaction to this no better than pagans. There was no repentance. There was no turning back to God in mass. No national repentance. They responded like pagans would respond. And so in verse 3, you will take a small number of them and bind them in the edge of your garment and take some of them again and throw them into the midst of the fire and burn them in the fire. From there, a fire will go out into all the house of Israel. It's interesting that in 586 B.C., beginning on July 18th, when the Babylonians finally made it through the walls of Jerusalem, they finally penetrated with their battering rams through the walls. And they started to set the city on fire. They discovered that much of the population of Jerusalem had already become decimated by famine. A fever broke out. A fire-like fever had broken out because of the lack of food supply, lack of nutrients, the disease that had spread. And a great number of the people had already died. Others were killed by the sword. Others tried to flee or were taken captive. And many that tried to flee were also killed. Notice he is to take some of the hairs, the small in number, and bind them in his simple tunic, his garment that he would wear. And that was a symbol of the remnant that would be saved. A remnant would escape that judgment, but later on, just as he was throwing a portion of that saved remnant, those hairs, into the fire, many of that remnant would also be killed. And you may remember, if you were here in Jeremiah, back in Jeremiah 40 through 43, the new governor of the land after the captivity named Gedaliah was killed by a character named Ishmael. Not the Ishmael of Genesis, this Ishmael who was conspiring with the enemies of Israel and he killed and started this coup, uh, killing even some of these remnant that had escaped. That's probably the reference. Now, beginning in verse 5, we have the explanation for this bizarre behavior, these action sermons. He acted it out and now he tells them precisely what it means in unmistakable terms. And I see here a principle. And here it is. Some Christians think that all you have to do is live your witness in front of the world, and that's enough. You never have to use any words. In fact, I've even heard certain sayings like, um, preach the gospel, and if necessary, use words. Listen, it's always necessary to use words. Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Paul asks in Romans chapter 10, how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard. Listen, you can live a great example and witness before the world. They need to know why 
you're such a great person, a wonderful example, a sweet and awesome, lovely guy or gal. They need to hear the gospel message in order to believe. So having portrayed it and acted it out, now he's going to apply it. Let me ask you this. Do people around you know that you love Jesus, that you're a follower of Jesus? Do you make it known? Years ago, there were commercials on television. Lady Clairol, only your hairdresser knows for sure. And we used to call some Christians Lady Clairol Christians. Only God knows for sure. Make sure that other people around you know why you are the way you are. Look for those opportunities. Tell them the gospel. Tell them how it is they can have their sins forgiven. So having visualized it, now he begins the message. Thus says the Lord God, This is Jerusalem. I have set her in the midst of the nations and the countries all around her. Jerusalem was and is a very unique place. It's the one place God promised he would set his name above all the places on the face of the earth. A lot of people go to Jerusalem today and um, they'll look at Jerusalem with its uh, pollution and uh, uh, the traffic and they'll look at it and go, yeah, it's, it's a great place to be, but of all the places God could put his name, why here? I love the principle, God has chosen the foolish things of this world to confound the wise. It's just what God chose. God told the children of Israel right off the bat from the beginning, I didn't choose you because you were great or more in number than any other nation on earth. It's because I love you. That was his reason. I love you because I love you. I chose you because I love you. But here it says, God put Jerusalem in the midst of the nations. Jerusalem is the geographic center of the world biblically. In the Bible, north is always north of Israel. South is always south of Israel. East is always east of Israel. West is always west of Israel. And if you look at it geographically and topographically, uh, Israel is on a land bridge that connects Egypt, Mesopotamia. It's that bridge and that uh, trade route and breadbasket that is in the center, the midst of all of the nations. It's also the salvation center of the world spiritually. Jesus said to the woman at the well of Samaria, We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. And the only place God ever paid for the salvation of mankind was just outside the gate of Jerusalem, outside the Damascus gate at a place called Golgotha. Jerusalem is also the storm center of the world prophetically. Any diplomat knows that what goes on in um, New Jersey is not nearly as important as what goes on in Jerusalem. Or what goes on in any city, any country of the world is not as important as what goes on there in Jerusalem. It's the tinderbox politically of the world. And God, through the prophet Zechariah, said, I have set her as a, a cup of trembling. For all nations. But Jerusalem is the glory center of the world ultimately. 
It's the place Jesus came the first time. It's the place Jesus will come back to the second time. And his foot will touch on the Mount of Olives and it will cleave in two from east to the west. And God, the Messiah, Jesus, will reign from Jerusalem for a period of a thousand years. So right in the midst, the center of the nations. But verse 6, She has rebelled against my judgments by doing wickedness more than the nations and against my statutes more than the countries that are all around her. For they have refused my judgments. They have not walked in my statutes. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because you have multiplied disobedience more than the nations that are all around you, have not walked in my statutes nor kept my judgments, nor even done according to the judgments of the nations that are all around you. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Indeed, I, even I, am against you and will execute judgments in your midst in the sight of the nations. Wickedness had been committed, and wickedness had been tolerated by others. So God says, you're doing what other nations haven't done. You're more wicked than those who received less light than you have received. And so the judgment will be according. He says, I will execute judgments in your midst in the sight of the nations. And I will do among you what I have never done and the like of which I will never do again because of all of your abominations. Therefore, fathers shall eat their sons in your midst and sons shall eat their fathers. And I will execute judgments among you and all of you who remain I will scatter to all the winds. Israel, what a privileged nation. Paul says, of whom are the covenants, the glory, and the Messiah. All of the pluses that God had given, the blessings God had given Israel. And God intended this nation, called by his name, to be a light to all of the other nations, a light to the Gentiles. But the Lord says, you weren't a light. In fact, you exceeded these other nations, Hagoyim is the Hebrew, referring to any nation other than Israel. You've exceeded them in wickedness. Now, this principle of God judging Israel because their wickedness was worse than the other isn't just an Old Testament principle. It's found in the New Testament. When Paul writes to the Corinthians, he says in 1 Corinthians 5, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you as not as even is named among the Gentiles that a man has his father's wife. Paul is writing that carnal church saying, you're doing stuff that even pagans don't do. And you're tolerating it in your midst. Today the world exonerates the attribute of tolerance almost above anything else. Not righteousness, tolerance is their watchword. We need to be more tolerant of people. Any lifestyle, be more tolerant. However, if you allow anything and everything and don't stop or speak out against anything, you'll be wrong. When Jesus wrote letters, 
more accurately, postcards, because they were short, to the seven churches in Asia. He wrote to Ephesus and commended them, not for their tolerance, but for their intolerance. He wrote them and he said, I know your works, your labor, your patience, that you cannot bear those who are evil. You've tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and you found them liars. He said, straight A's on your report card for your works, for your labor, for your patience, and you've been watchdogs for the faith. You've stood up for righteousness. You haven't tolerated anything. Those who were false apostles, you stood against them. He commended them for their intolerance. There was another church that was very tolerant. It was the church of Thyatira. The Lord Jesus said, I am against you because you allow that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess to teach and seduce my servants and to commit sexual immorality. Jesus rebuked them for their tolerance. You're letting anyone do anything in your midst. And that's what Corinth had done. And that's what Israel in the Old Testament had done. Wickedness had been committed worse even than Gentile nations, and the rest were tolerant. Therefore, verse 11, as I live, now that's a solemn oath, mark that, because 14 times in this book of Ezekiel you'll find that. As I live. This is God pledging his very existence as a promise for the judgment that is to come. As I live says the Lord God, Surely, because you have defiled my sanctuary with all of your detestable things, with all of your abominations, therefore I will also diminish you. My eye will not spare, nor will I have any pity. The height of their wickedness. One of the things that caused the downfall of the city of Jerusalem and the temple itself is the temple itself had become defiled. At one time... King Manasseh put the idols of other nations in the temple courts themselves, bringing a syncretistic worship. Here's the Lord God, Yahweh, the covenant God, and he brings these pagan altars and sets them up next to the altar of God so the people could worship whomever and whatever. One-third of you, here's now the application of that action sermon, one-third of you will die of pestilence and be consumed with famine in your midst. One-third will fall by the sword all around you. And I will scatter another third to all the winds, and I will draw out a sword after them. Thus my anger, or thus shall my anger be spent. And I will cause my fury to rest upon them. And I will be avenged, and they shall know that I, the Lord, have spoken in my zeal when I have spent my fury upon them. Moreover, I will make you a waste and a reproach among the nations that are all around you in the sight of all who pass by. So it shall be a reproach, a taunt, a lesson, and an astonishment to the nations that are all around you. When I execute judgments among you in anger, in fury, and in furious rebukes, I, the Lord, have spoken. Notice the six-fold repetition of those words, fury and anger. God uses them on purpose. He stacks them in this paragraph. He's showing his hatred for idolatry. He's the only true and living God. 
And so he is trying to impress upon their consciousness how intensely he hates uh, this idolatry that they had practiced. When I send against them the terrible arrows of famine, which shall be for destruction, which I send you or I send to destroy you, I will increase the famine upon you and cut off your supply of bread. So I will send against you famine and wild beasts, and they will bereave you. Pestilence and blood shall pass through you, and I will bring the sword against you. I, the Lord, have spoken. We only wonder what looks were on their faces as Ezekiel got up from these signs and then gave these messages to them. And I say that because for so long and so often, God had sent prophets to them. And the nation refused to listen. The only thing they wanted to do is shut the mouth of God's true prophets and listen to the false prophets who were speaking pleasing things. Oh, yes, prophesy unto us smooth things, they said. Sweet utterances. Don't talk about the judgment of God. Jesus promised the Holy Spirit would come. And when he comes, Jesus said he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. It's actually healthy when a person becomes convinced, convicted of the judgment of God and is worried about it. It's a good sign. I've heard people say, well, you know, it's bad when people are motivated to come to Christ because of future judgment or guilt. Baloney. It's a healthy sign. And if the love of God won't motivate them, I say let anything that will keep them out of hell forever motivate them. The Holy Spirit will convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment of sin because they believe not on me. I had an interesting encounter some time back with an FBI agent. It was after 9-11. I'm a chaplain for the Bureau I was in one day, and one of the agents came up to me and said, uh, could I have some time with you, chaplain? I said, I'd love to. He said, well, I'd like to have it out of the office. I don't want to have it here. Could we meet at your office at the church? I said, great. We set up a, an appointment. He came there, a uh, young, strong uh, agent. He was on the SWAT team. He was Bureau's best, still is. And he looked very nervous and sort of shuffled his feet, and then he sat down. He said, I sort of feel embarrassed to talk to you about this because I have stood in the face of death time and time again. I've had my gun pointed in several situations. I've had shots taken at me. I know what it's like to put my life on the line. I'm not afraid to do so. At least I haven't been until recently. And then he got really nervous again. He goes, I feel so embarrassed to tell you this. He said, I'm going to get on an airplane tomorrow and fly across the country and see my parents. And I'm afraid... And then, you know, he looked down and he goes, you're going to think this is crazy. I'm afraid of what happens to me if I die. And he said, see, isn't that crazy? And I said, that's one of the healthiest things you could say and feel. It shows that God is at work. What do you mean by that? And I explained the gospel to him. I said, do you know Christ? He said, no. I said, you ought to be afraid. (laughs) Really afraid. Then I told him how much God loved him. 
told him the plan that God has for his life. God wants you as one of his agents. And it was wonderful to hold his hand that day and have him pray to receive Jesus Christ and become a brother in the Lord. It's a healthy sign. And that lack of conviction over the judgment that the Holy Spirit comes to bring, when that isn't present, it's dangerous. It's a danger sign. The judgment is inevitable for that nation or that person. Now, the word of the Lord came to me saying, chapter 6, verse 1, now 2, Son of man, set your face toward the mountains of Israel and prophesy against them. Why the mountains? Because the mountains were the places the shrines were. It was on the hills, on the elevated places, the strategic elevations. It was part of Baal and Ashtoreth worship where the groves were and altars were kept and images of these false gods. And that's where Israel had taken the altars of the Babylonian worship system and placed them all over their land. So face the mountains of Israel. Prophesy against them and say, O mountains of Israel, hear the word of the Lord God. Thus says the Lord God to the mountains, to the hills, to the ravines, and to the valleys. Indeed, I, even I, will bring a sword against you and I will destroy your high places. Now, four distinct topographical features of the land of Israel are mentioned in this verse. It could be that it's just symbolic of the entire land of Israel, and so it's a description stacked one upon another four times. But these are unique features of the land of Israel. Running right through the middle of Israel is the spine of mountains. You see, Israel is part of a great geological formation called the Syrio-African Rift. starts way up in Syria, goes all the way down into Africa. And some think that in the past, when there was an adjustment of the tectonic plates of the earth, that it formed this great Syrio-African rift. And the spine of mountains that is left that goes all the way from Mount Gilboa and then Nazareth, the hills of Samaria and Jerusalem, form that central spine of mountains. And then you have the hills, which are on the coastal side. The coastal plain rises up to a whole series of fertile hills where cities were built, Agricultural farms still exist. And then it dips down into the deep valleys. And the Jordan Valley from the Hula Valley through the Jordan River down into the Dead Sea, all of it is below sea level. Deep, steep valleys. Then what's interesting is right after that on the east side are the ravines, this uh, sharp escarpment of uh, topography that jets up to about 2,000 to 3,000 feet above sea level from the Dead Sea, which is almost 1,300 feet below sea level, going up to 3,000 feet above sea level. It's just a massive geological formation. So it's interesting that all of these are mentioned in that verse uh, typifying the entire land of Israel that is consigned to the judgment of God. Then your altars, verse 4, shall be desolate. Your incense altars shall be broken, and I will cast down your slain men before your idols. And I will lay the corpses of the children of Israel before their idols, and I will scatter your bones all around your altars. To do this, this action was to defile the pagan shrines. 
when people were slain and scattered around an altar, it made that worship site unusable for its future as a site of worship. And it would prove, not only is it desecrated not to be used again, it would prove the inability of the gods that were worshipped in that place to protect the people. They were inept. They were unpowerful because they're not true gods. There's only one true God, and he's flexing his muscle and showing that all of these other gods are false. They couldn't protect anybody that worshipped them. In all your dwelling places, the cities shall be laid waste, and the high places shall be desolate, so that your altars may be laid waste and made desolate, your idols may be broken and made to cease, your incense altars may be cut down, and your works may be abolished. The slain shall fall in your midst, and you shall know that I am the Lord. Watch out for that phrase in the rest of the book. You'll see it mentioned 60 times in this book. That's one of the dominant themes of Ezekiel. He wants them to know who God is. They had forgotten God. They had spurned His grace and His mercy. You shall know that I am the Lord. And that's the essential reason for judgment, by the way, is the violation of the character and nature of God. God is uniquely separate from his creation. Now this is important because in the modern New Age and in ancient and modern Hinduism, there is the idea that God is a part of creation. That God and creation are the same. So if you go to India, they have you know, hundreds of millions of gods and basically it's all a seamless garment, the universe and God. Rocks and cows and creatures and people and plants. It's all part of the divine being. The Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible teaches that God is uniquely holy, uniquely other, wholly other than, separate and distinct from His creation, thus above it. The creature is not the Creator. He is blessed forevermore. They are not one and the same. And uh, by the way, the, the temple in Jerusalem that they defiled spoke to that. It was a demonstration of that. Because you go into the temple and there's two great truths that the temple tells you. Number one, God is available and will meet with His people. That's where they would go to meet God. But number two, there is sin that separates man from God that must be atoned for. So you had sacrifices and you had altars and you had courts that divided. You couldn't go into a certain court unless you were a certain kind of a person or unless you were a priest. So God would meet with his people, but because God was uniquely and wholly other and perfectly holy, he could only meet over the sacrifice of blood. That's where he would meet with his people. And the purpose of the captivity was to remind them of what they had forgotten. God is numero uno. They had forgotten that. And the captivity will remind them of that. And by the way, it worked. Because when they got back from the land of captivity, never again did they erect altars of idol worship and turn to idolatry like they had to the same degree as they had in the past. Yet I will leave you a remnant, verse 8, so that you may have some who escape the sword among the nations when you are scattered through the countries. In every age, God has his remnant. And God is not finished today with his plan for the nation of Israel. He wasn't 
finished then. He's not finished now. Read uh, on your own sometime uh, or get the tapes of Pastor Chuck on Romans 9, 10, and 11 to show the great covenant promises. God has not cast away his people. The plan continues. Then those of you who escape will remember me among the nations where they are carried captive because I was crushed by their adulterous heart which has departed from me and by their eyes which play the harlot after their idols. They will loathe themselves for the evils which they have committed in all their abominations. God says their idolatry broke my heart. You see, God isn't some detached deity ready to enact a temper tantrum. He loves his people. His heart is broken by their sin. He doesn't delight in judgment. The Lord is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And friend, if you haven't given your life to Jesus Christ and you're facing a certain judgment in years and time to come, God would tell you tonight, He has something better for you. He doesn't want you to face that. He has salvation for you. And they shall know, there it is again, that I am the Lord. I have not said in vain that I would bring this calamity upon them. Thus says the Lord God, pound your fists, And stamp your feet and say, Alas, for the evil abominations of the house of Israel, for they shall fall by the sword, by famine and by pestilence. It's interesting, sort of odd actually. The pounding of the fists and stomping of the feet was an ancient expression of joy. So picture Ezekiel. He has to stand in front of the people and do this kind of a thing. And they'd look at him like, What on earth are you doing? That's an expression of joy. It's not that God was portraying through the prophet that he was joyful of the suffering that would come upon his people. The joy is that idolatry will be ended. It's worth a celebration. This will cure the nation. The idolatry in Israel will be over. He who is far off shall die by the pestilence. He who is near shall fall by the sword. He who remains and is besieged shall die by the famine. Thus I will spend my fury upon them. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. When their slain are among their idols, all around their altars, on every high hill, on all the mountaintops, under every green tree, and under every thick oak, wherever they offered sweet incense to all their idols, so I will stretch out my hand against them and make the land desolate. Yes, more desolate than the wilderness toward Diblah, south of the Dead Sea, on the eastern side of Moab. I've been through this area. I thought the California desert was pretty bleak or the New Mexico wastelands were pretty bleak. It brings a whole new meaning to desolation to see this part of the desert. Empty, absolutely nothing growing. Desolate. Then they shall know, there it is again, that I am the Lord. God wants us to know that he is the Lord. In fact, God wants you to have him as your Lord. 
your master. One day, every person will make the confession. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It could be you've just come to a Bible study tonight or you decided to flip through the radio stations and for some reason you've paused on this one or you're on the Internet, whatever it might be. It could be that the Holy Spirit has brought a level of convincing conviction of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. And he's saying that sin has to be dealt with. If that sin isn't dealt with, and you try to face eternity on your own, you're toast. There's no hope. He's convincing you of that, convicting you of that. Listen to it. The Bible talks about the confession of our sins. Now, we live in a day and age when nobody wants to take responsibility for sin. We like to blame shift. It started way back in the Garden of Eden. It was the woman you gave me. That's what Adam said. It's not my fault. It's her fault. It's the chick, Lord. And she said, it's the serpent. And some people today don't want to take responsibility for their own action, for their own condition, for their own sin. It's not my fault. It's that I am genetically predisposed to this activity. I can't help it. I was forced to eat spinach when I was a child. I'm a product of my environment. I was abused, etc. Whatever would, would cause the blame shift for the sin nature. We need to take responsibility. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I love the story of Frederick the Great, the king of Prussia, who went into a prison and was looking at the different inmates, and they all claimed to be innocent. I don't deserve to be here. I'm innocent. And he heard it, inmate after inmate. The last one he turned to and he said, I suppose you're going to tell me you're innocent as well. He said, no, sir. I'm guilty for the crimes as charged, and I deserve punishment. Frederick the Great, taken aback a little bit, said to the keeper of the prison, come here and release this rascal before he corrupts all these fine, innocent people in here. (laughs) Soon as you confess your sin and you turn to God, you're released from prison, brought into the family, and you know that he is the Lord because you make him your Lord by that confession of faith, that commitment. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, so many great and relevant lessons have surfaced and have been brought home to our hearts tonight through the prophet Ezekiel in these chapters 4, 5, and 6. It's not an ancient, outdated book. It's very modern, very up-to-date, and you have spoken to our hearts tonight. Thank you for that. You've showed us your precision in prophecy, your precision in judgment. You've demonstrated not only that you are unique and powerful and holy, but so loving 
so much that your heart would break. Just like Jesus' heart was breaking when he saw Jerusalem or when he was seeing the multitudes and was filled with compassion for them. In that love, Lord, we would pray for anyone who has not made Jesus Christ the Lord, the Savior. That tonight would be the day of salvation. And they would know that you are the Lord. Thank you, Father, for our time together. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand. Pastor Skip has spoken tonight about how God has given to each of us that wonderful capacity of choice. But also with that capacity of choice comes the responsibility for the choices I've made. And as he pointed out, God said that when you see these things, you will know that I am God. How much will it take until you acknowledge that he is God? You see, it's your choice. You choose to believe that he is God and that he has spoken and that he has spoken truth. Or you choose not to believe. Faith is a matter of choice. I choose to believe it or I choose not to believe it. If I choose to believe it, I experience then the rewards of believing that eternal life that God has promised to me. If I choose not to believe, then I will face the consequences, as did Judah, as did Israel, of not believing what God had said. Tonight, your choice. If you'd like to choose to walk with the Lord, he'll walk with you. If you'd like to choose Jesus Christ, he'll be your companion. He'll forgive you of your sins. And you can live in glorious fellowship with him. The pastors are down here at the front to pray with you. If you'd like to make that choice tonight, they're here. They'll be happy to confirm that choice and to pray with you that you might experience the love of God working in your life. If there are other needs that you have, God is able to meet those needs. Maybe you'd like someone to pray with you over a particular need or a problem that you might be facing. They're here to minister to you, to pray for you. Whatever the situation or need might be, God is able to meet that need and to bless your life. Your choice. But I would encourage you, choose right. God spoke of the people. He said, I've set before you life and death. Choose life that you might live. Jesus, 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 there's just something about that name. 
Master, Savior, Jesus, like the fragrance after the rain. Jesus, 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 let all heaven and earth proclaim. Kings and kingdoms will all pass away, but there's something about 